Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. have a really great episode in store today where I welcome in Rob Volpe, who is the founder and CEO of Ignite360. And on this episode, we talk a lot about Rob's journey and how luck and serendipity played a role, as well as uncovering empathy and that being the core foundation of his business going forward. I think you guys will take a tremendous amount of learning away from this. I know I did. So without further ado, my chat today with Rob Volpe. Let's get it started. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. Awesome. Thank you for having me. I've been excited to chat with you uh, because there's actually a lot of, I think, similarities, especially around empathy, uh, which I'm really excited to hear your perspective on. Um, that we'll definitely dive into as we as we get into the uh, interview. What I thought to start off with, it's actually always interesting uh, for folks like yourself that have had this long career. You're now you've started businesses, you know those type of things. I, I want to go back because you actually went to college just north of where I grew up. Um, I, I grew up in upstate New York. You went to Syracuse. I, I want you to take us back, just more curiosity. When you were leaving, you were getting that diploma handed to you and someone was saying, hey, Rob, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? What was that answer? Do you remember back then what you were going to do? What was going to be the, the big thing? I, I was headed to Hollywood. I wanted to be the next TV network programming executive. The next, I guess back in the day, it was Brandon Tartikoff or um, Bob Iger, actually, who's the uh, CEO of Disney. He, he had that job as well at one point, I think at ABC. And I, I found it at the time, I was just always intrigued with entertainment and was really curious, uh, not curious. I liked the idea of being able to be the one to choose like what America was gonna watch on TV. I thought that, you know, in developing programming and selecting what would go on and when and the competition, you know, cause back then this is uh, 1991. So we had cable. But, and we had MTV and, and all of that, but we weren't quite at the 500, you know, it's like 5,000 channel universe and all the streaming options that we've got today. So it was still a real dogfight between uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then the Fox network had just, uh, just started, which actually ended up being um, my second job when I got out to, once I got out to Los Angeles a few months later. So what happened? You got to LA and then... Did that just change by as the years went on, or did did, did your mindset just be like, ah, I don't want to really do that once I got into it? What was the thought? I've always been one to think about like or, or approach these things like, okay, let's let's jump in and we'll figure it out as we go along, rather than lining everything up. I and mean, some people I've noticed are very uh preparatory and doing all their research and having all of their ducks in a row and you know i i had a friend from syracuse who was a really good friend she was from la and so she let me stay her parents actually let me stay at their place so i was there for about a month i wrecked her car while i was doing it um and it 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 gave me at least some sort of a foundation but i didn't know anybody i didn't have Mm -hmm. You know, my uncle Joe, who was uh, already an executive and could get me an introduction or something like that. So I had to figure it out. And I knew, though, I went out there armed with the fact that I was, I knew I had really good office skills. 
um, because of some summer jobs that I had. And I, I, one of the most valuable classes I ever took in high school was typing. And I became really good at typing. And I could type quickly with very few errors. I was really good on the phone. I had some office experience uh, through some summer jobs. So I knew I was gonna land somewhere and land on my feet. And I got a job uh, temp, through a temp agency because that's what you would do <clears throat> because you know there were always all of the, the uh, talent agencies, the law firms, the studios themselves, they needed you know temps, you know secretaries basically to come in and fill in a desk for whatever reason. Um, and I got a gig at an entertainment law firm. They were moving offices. And so I was helping one secretary pack up her boss's office. She happened to be away from her desk. The phone rang. I went ahead and answered it because the phone's ringing. That's what you do. Um, you know, put on my good you know office voice, and it turned out it was the lawyer. <laughs> he was because he was driving back from his lunch meeting, wondering like who'd called. And so I found the the call list, and you know, started to navigate it. And they were like, you know, first I think he was like, who the hell's that? But then uh, they realized they did a good job. And I ended up working at that law firm. They hired me ultimately. Um, I worked there for about a year, um, which was really fun to be right out of college. And I was working at like one of the top entertainment law firms. So you know, they represented every major celebrity and producer back in the early 90s Hollywood. Um, you know, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, uh, I think Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, like you name it. Um, I got to talk to some of the celebrities on the phone when they were the actors, the talent, or the producers, um, which kind of got like a gee whiz Hollywood thing out of my system, but it was it was a lot of fun. And it gave me an opportunity to learn the landscape and start to figure out then, okay, like where do I want to go from there? And I had, um, yeah, I had interviewed at a job at Fox um, in their, what's kind of their marketing research or market research um, job and I found out I was number two. I was not their top pick, but I was their second choice, which always strikes me when people let you know that. I think they want to let you down easy, but it's like, yeah, but number two is a long way from number one, you right. know, like there's no consolation. Um, but what did happen a month or so, six weeks later, they had an opportunity for a job as a legal secretary, which is what I had been doing at the law firm. Um, so my current job, they had a role like that on the lot in the, at the network and, you know, it was a pay cut, but I was like, okay, yeah, but I'm at least, you know, in the network on the lot and I can, again, get closer and figure it out as I'm going, right. going along. Yeah. Um, and so I made that leap. And so I was in Hollywood. I worked in Hollywood for four years. That job, my boss took me over to HBO, uh, year or two later, uh, and I was there for a couple of years. I got my first uh, executive position as a contract administrator. I got to go through and make sure the credits were all uh, contractually correct um, and there were no spelling errors or anything like that for the TV series that we were producing um, within this particular division at HBO. Okay. Um, that was an amazing job. That was a lot of fun. But I was also realizing that what I was actually getting really passionate about was marketing and that my current job is this contract administrator. And this was in like a business affairs function. So we did that the team that I was on, we did all of the contract negotiations with the agents 
and other lawyers for the talent, the above what's known as the above the line talent. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> the actors, the writers, the producers, the director of the TV series um, that we were working on. And so I ended up, um, you know, it was intellectually stimulating, but I wasn't really passionate about it. What got me excited, what I realized was like watching trailers for movies. Because um, back then I was in my early 20s, I hadn't come out yet. And I was, or actually I had come out by then, but I was just like going to movies all the time with my friends. And mm -hmm. I like loved, loved, loved seeing all of these different uh, um, trailers and how they were positioning and, and teeing up the story and trying to convince people to go and, and put, da put down their money and watch this movie. And I thought, I want to do that when I grow up. So um, I took a course in Hollywood marketing that was taught by one of these executives that did just that. And it was sounded kind of cool. And I was like, okay, I think I want to make that type of a leap. And then I had this whole confluence of events uh, in 1995 where uh, my mom uh, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, so she was going through that. I wasn't passionate about my job. I was just intellectually, you know, curious or stimulated. I wasn't passionate about my work. Um, looking to get into marketing then as a result. And I was dating um, a reporter from a New York television station that was out in Los Angeles covering the O.J. Simpson trial, which was going on that, that summer, which lasted for a long time. So we had an on relationship for quite a while. Um, and so I started job hunting and networking uh, to try and find my way into um, a marketing role and, and both within the industry. And I got a lot of advice of just saying, leave Hollywood and go do something else, like get, get CPG experience and tradi traditional consumer packaged goods. So I re always remember there was somebody at, I think she was working at Sony and she told me, she's like, you can always come back to entertainment, but once you get too far down this path, it's very difficult to leave entertainment and go yeah. into That's a good point. Well, yeah. and, and you brought up there, I, I think it's a great point maybe to interject is there's a lot of things that happen, but you probably wouldn't have got to that point around marketing and now with, you know, consumer insights and stuff like that, if you didn't have that kind of open canvas to say, hey, let's just kind of see what happens. Let's, let's go with the flow, go with my gut feeling, luck, you know, you picked up that phone call from the the, the, you know, the lawyer that, you know, like those type of things, I don't think luck gets talked about nearly as enough. enough. Um, but the one thing I did want to mention, because we're in a really unique time, as we all know, and just kind of this new normal we're in, I, I feel like at least from the younger, like, especially a lot of the Gen Zers that I'm talking with, that there's really this struggle of figuring out like, what do I do? You know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, beyond, it was generally, hey, I'm in my hometown, I'm just going to work at the factory or the mill or the maybe a, a, some job entry level and then build my way up. Now it's a it's a different ball game and everything's moving a mile a minute. So I'm more curious, I guess, any insight that you've learned from that experience, additional that you would share of like you know if it's a college student that's out there figuring out what their next step is. Um, yeah, don't um, don't feel like you're wedded to one career or to one job and and don't let someone put you in a box that you don't want to be in. Um, so I made some decisions, you know, one of, one of the paths as I was thinking about getting into marketing was like, oh, I could go get an MBA. 
And I went ahead and I took the, um, what is it, the GMAT or whatever, um, and then applied to, I got into Pepperdine's executive MBA program. So I could still work, but then, you know, I was like, oh, well, I could work at HBO and then go to class in the evenings. And it was like that or go into marketing and, and take the leap and jump into the pool again. And I, I remember looking at the course list at Pepperdine and there were like 10 classes that I was going to have to take over the course of, you know, two years or something. And there were like two or three of them that were really, really interesting to me. And the others, like there was one, I think it was like global macro, macro global finance or something like that, that I was just like, put pens in my eyes. Like that just sounds painful. Um, and I know myself well enough that I'm, if I'm not interested in something, I'm not going to do well. So I was like, okay, I can go and struggle and get the MBA. And it still doesn't mean I'm going to have a job or I can try to get in. So again, jump into the pool and look around and go, oh, let's go swim over into this corner. And so that was my approach to getting into marketing was like, let me just get the job. And then I can figure it out from there and, and, and figure out what I like and I don't like. And so my, my and I, I ended up in different jobs. I moved every two years, two to three years until I got into research, until I found the thing that I was really passionate about. And that didn't happen until I was in my late thirties. Mm -hmm. um, so my advice to Gen Z's, it's okay. You don't have to have it all figured out right now. Um, you just have to start somewhere. Find an area that you think you're interested in, start to work there, find ways in, you know, whether it's, you know, yeah, take a, a secretarial position, take an entry level position. You're not going to be the CEO, you know, in year one or year two, this is a journey and it takes a lot of time and you're going to learn a lot as you're going along, but you have to start. Yeah. And if it works great, you can keep going. If you don't like it, hmm. What's this over here? And so I was always, as I was moving around, I was making, um, I was moving into adjacencies within marketing. So I started at a PR firm, did that, but was I did not love PR itself. I have a lot of respect for the the field, but it wasn't my like thing. I wasn't totally made out for it. But I did have a lot of opportunities to do some promotional marketing and event uh, sampling and set up those programs. And I really loved that because I got to engage with real people and hand them samples of new products and get their reaction to it, which is a lot like research. Um, but in the, that moment, it was like the, the opportunity for the events and I was traveling around the country and it was super fun. Um, so my next job after that, I was like, okay, I. I I know PR is not my thing. Um, I'm good at this sort of promotional marketing thing, but I wanted to go someplace outside of a PR firm that was actually doing this more full time. And so I ended up at a job at a marketing communications firm. And I was there for about 18 months, I think. And then I ended up getting laid off. But that was okay because a friend and I had been conspiring to start our own little practice uh, consulting with small businesses on marketing and PR. Again, so, maybe one of those lucky points where you might have kind of trickled down to start it, right? Taking your time versus you had to say, all right, we're ripping the bandaid off. I was pushed. And again, there is so much serendipity and luck that does happen in, you know, uh, and you have to put yourself out there, but right, you know, a day or two after I got let go from that firm. And that was a very, you know, when you get laid off, it's like, okay, thanks. Here you go. Leave. Been there. Yep. Um, yeah. And, you know, and it sucks. It's really difficult, but 
two days later, I was having lunch with uh, some former colleagues from that firm. And you know, this is all like kind of Flatiron District of Manhattan. And the old PR firm that I had been at was nearby. And one of my juniors, the guy that I was managing when I was at the PR firm before I left, he happened to be at the same restaurant having lunch. And he came over, oh my God, how are you? And I told him what was going on. He's like, well, we could actually use your help with this one account. So I suddenly picked up, you know, it's like I laid off from one. I got, there we go. my severance was like $5,000. So I was like, ooh, that's my starter money. You know, I can like, I can figure out how to live on that for two months. Um, but then all of a sudden, yeah, I got my first client. And so we were, we were in business and things turned around, you know, just like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you, you have to put yourself out there. You've got to be willing to take the chance to make something happen. Yeah. And I, you know, I kind of talk about the, uh, from a just get started standpoint, I kind of have the three, I, it's kind of called like the trifecta of happiness is, is kind of my working, <laughs> but basically it's like doing what you love, right? What you can be great at and where you want to make an impact in the world. And impact can be, as we know, a variety of different things. But I think to your point, you started to figure out that, hey, I love doing this, right? This I'm starting to get really good at it. And then this is maybe where I see that I could help other people out. And you start kind of narrowing down and checking those boxes as you went through that early journey, right into your mid-30s. So Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I didn't... Um... You know, I probably had one or two of those things in that first kind of go round. I, I loved being out on my own and working, you know, I was working virtually and we didn't have an office. My business partner was up in Boston. I was in New York um, and I loved the flexibility and the freedom. And I liked working with small businesses, but did I really love the work? No, it, it, it definitely at times felt like work. Um, it wasn't until I you know, finally, like the universe presents um, uh, enough signs to you. And if you're paying attention to what the universe is putting out, it it, it will help guide you in the, the path that you want to go. And, you know, when I say universe, you know, depending what your belief system is, it could be God, it could be whatever, but those signs are there and you just have to have your eyes open to pay attention to it. Um, so I referenced earlier, like handing out sampling and getting everybody's feedback. That's like a form of, of consumer research. Um, I had other situations where at one point after 9-11, I had to, to go back and, as I, I call it, feel the warm embrace of a large corporation um, because the, the things very similar to right now, things in New York were just so upside down. After 9-11 happened, no one knew what was happening. So nobody knew how to market or figure out what to do. So I was like, okay, I need to go work at a large company again and know that I've got a salary and all of that. I ended up at Kraft Foods in one of their New York offices, um, which was a great experience. And I also got opportunities to sit in on focus groups and to go in on um, some in-home ethnographies, all things that I love doing now, but was just getting introduced to them. And, and um, I used to, I, I always say like, I was the one, I would show up at the start of every, uh, for every, you know, it's a day long of focus groups. You probably have three or four in a day. I'd be the first one there and I'd stay all the way through the debrief, you know, 12 hours later because I just loved it that much. And to me, it was like, these are your consumers. You're getting an opportunity to hear from your consumer. That's such an amazing gift. Like it's more important than almost anything else that you're going to do because if you don't have consumers, you don't have a business. Yeah. But I still wasn't getting the message that like, oh, this is this is the career path for me. Um, and it was finally, um, I had 
we moved to San Francisco uh, for another job and another type of position. I got laid off uh, from that job after a couple of years. And then I got, um, I, I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. I was doing a little consulting piecemeal here and there. And you know, one fateful dinner I had with the owner of a youth uh, marketing research firm, she said to me, I was do had done some consulting work for them and writing strategy decks and things like that. She's like, I'm looking to hire somebody that's just like you, that's got the strategy chops, but that can also moderate. And we played the name game for a few minutes, couldn't really come up with somebody. Three days later, it finally dawned on me, like, wait a minute, I like talking to people. I like yeah. listening. Maybe this is something for me. Um, and so that that's what really then got me started into the, this career. Um, and I've been, you know, I was at one firm, I got trained to moderate. I was at one firm for about four, three and a half, four years, uh, and then went out and started Ignite360 in early 2011, so almost 10 years ago. Like, I've been in the same industry now for 13 or 14 years. That's crazy, yeah. thinking about how much I moved around when I was younger, um, as I was still trying to figure things out. So it's a great example of, you know, you have to keep looking. Um, you have to keep trying things until you find what really is the best fit. And then I would say is the trifecta now um, for me. Yeah. So are you, so th did that client then, is that, that's what sparked Ignite to, I guess that's maybe that's why it's the name. I don't know, but the, is that what, is that what ignited the, uh, the that's start what of the company? That, that conversation, no, that conversation is what got me into the field. Oh, okay. Like full time and like, okay. oh yeah, go check. I mean, I was doing, when that conversation happened, I was doing some copywriting. I was doing some strategy work for people like you name. I was piecing together an existence and, you know, it wasn't bad. Um, and there were things that I enjoyed about each one, but it wasn't a career per se. I was kind of at my, my uh, thumb in a lot of pies, I guess would be the analogy. And so then what started uh, Ignite 360, so a few years later, I was working with this other firm. Um, I was a consultant with that firm, had done quite a lot of work, and um, it helped grow that business. And they got to a point where they needed me to become an employee. It's a California-based company. There's California employment uh, laws where you can't be a full-time, you can't be a full-time consultant just to one company. That means you're basically an employee. And so this other firm needed me to become an employee. And apparently I made this really like scrunchy face every time I would hear the word employee and in reference to me. Um, and the owner of the firm, she and I would laugh about it because I, you know, I, I didn't even realize I was doing it, but I like, you know, there was something physically responding to that. Yeah. Um, but at some point it needed to happen that I, I had to become an employee and they were unable to give me equity because that was one thing I felt like, okay, well, if I have equity in this company and I really am passionate about what we're doing and building, I could, I could see myself being an employee because then I'm an employee, but I'm also an owner. And unfortunately that wasn't something they were able to do. And then that happens. That's okay. So I had them offer, you know, I said, okay, well, let's, let's show me the contract you know, let, let's take a look at that. And I will never forget, I was uh, in my dining room or kitchen dining area. Um, it was kind of a gray day like today. And 
I looked, I opened up the PDF that had the contract in it and I saw, you know, the first opening sentences had my name and then it had the legal definition. So it had the parenthetical and the quotation marks and it said employee in all caps. And I looked at that and every fiber of my being was screaming, no, this isn't right. This isn't you. You can't do this. Like I've never gotten a message so strongly ever, ever. And I, I, I was like, okay, I can't, like it was so loud. My brain couldn't even rationalize through it. I was just like, I have to listen to this. Like this is this clearly. Well, you were jaded, it seemed like for, I mean, you got laid off twice before he had some experience. That, do you think that was part of it? Just like the, going through and, and kind of being at these companies where you're like, I, I maybe not my jam. Yeah, I mean, I knew being an just just being an employee was not. I I, I work way too hard. I care way too much um, to just be an employee for somebody else. Like I needed to have, um, I needed to have a sense of ownership mm-hmm. and a real like kind of seat at the table. And that was I was realizing was really important to me. Um, so so for me you know, there was just something was some message from the universe was just saying, no, don't do this. So this was that that inflection point in my life, I probably could have like talked myself into it somehow. And who knows what that would have resulted in, but I would have been working for somebody else. And, you know, and, and God, now I think about it 10 years later, I was like, oh, um, <laughs> You know, and she was a very good friend. Like we got on really well and I enjoyed working with her, but like it was the idea of being an employee for anybody, whether it was her or, or not. Um, and so that's when I took the deep breath and was like, all right, I've got to figure this out. And so I like found a lawyer to talk to, to figure out, you know, and started talking, having some conversations to figure out how does this even work? Um, and about Three weeks later, I gave notice, and a month after that, I was set free. So that was at the very end of 2010. Um, and so January 1, 2011, Ignite 360 came to be. Yeah, that's pretty neat. How, how did you um, talk me through the mindset of, it, it was one thing consulting on your own in the past, mm-hmm. but knowing that you were trying to grow a company, have employees, benefit, you know, like the, everything that comes with it. I'm just curious how you got to that point to say, hey, this is the direction I want to go in. This is the type of company I want to build. Again, more more curious on just the mindset around, you know, because that's a that's a lot of risk, right? So yeah, yeah, it it absolutely is. Um, again, you know, I'm I'm kind of one of those. Maybe I'm naive, but it's like, well, let's just jump in and we'll figure it out as we go along. I knew. Um, I didn't have, well, I guess if, if you went back and talked to late 2010 Rob or January 2011 Rob and told him what a guy 360 had become at this point, I'd probably say, yeah, that's that's about right or what we're I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have a, a roadmap or anything because I really, I didn't know if this was going to take off. I, you know, I didn't understand I had a sense that like this was a relationship business and so clients would come to me um, if they wanted to work with me and my company. Um, 
but and I also knew that in order to do the types of really cool um, and what are to me more fulfilling strategy type projects, I would need a bit of a team. Um, and I just knew that from working at the other firm. So I, you know, found somebody in my friendship network, everybody that I found initially was through my friend network that uh, knew how to moderate. She'd been trained. So I was like, okay, great. Join me. Um, and we got our first project right away. Like doors open, sign the contract, away we go. So really fortunate. And then once, um, once that first client knew and her company, uh, which is a major CPG company, once they knew that I was in business and this is what I was doing, it was like a fire hose getting pointed at us. Um, and that's where I started to probably make some early mistakes because, you know, you, you, I mean, this is all in year one. I don't really know how big is big, what this could really turn into, um, how do you even scale and grow. I didn't have a lot of experience working with other research firms. I only really knew this one. Um, so it was trying to figure out how to run that company. I did know my own weaknesses and was able to hire to compensate for that. So one of the first people I brought in, and he was actually helping me when I was wrapping up with the other firm, but it was somebody to do the books and to help manage the finances and send out the invoices. Cause I knew like, those are things that I don't like. And so why, like, I knew I would procrastinate on doing those, but those are so critical to having a successful business. So I, I knew I needed that. So I was trying to um, shore up some of my weak areas and then bringing people in. Um, but yeah, the work kept coming and I kept hiring people through the kind of friend network or some referrals. And there were a lot of people that hadn't worked in insights before at the time, which I thought was great and, and helped the company a lot because it enabled our own culture to organically develop based on the people that were here and our own shared beliefs and values. Um, there were a couple of situations where we brought in people that had been at other firms for you know years and years, and they had very much a, well, this is how it's done over here. And they were trying to bring that culture in. And it's like, no, no, no. And, and, and our culture ultimately ended up rejecting those people that weren't the right fit for the company. Um, but yeah, we, we grew really quickly. Like I said, it was like a fire hose. Um, I remember the, my guy doing finance at the time, he had put, we hit a million dollars in revenue by July. Um, like this time, you know, so it was middle of July when we were doing this interview, like middle of July in 2011, we'd had a million, a million dollars in revenue, you know, go evil, like one million. Yeah. And we're like, holy shit. And then he was like, well, gee, do you think we could hit $2 million by the end of the year? I'm like, I have no idea. And he put a, a thermometer on the whiteboard in the office. And it started to feel like I was in a blood drive or some sort of a fundraising competition trying to hit this number. And what I realized um, as it got later into the year, I made some decisions based on trying to meet that number rather than doing what was right for the business. And so we overextended a little bit and there were some problems with a couple of projects. And I had to have some you know, difficult conversations with clients and apologize and step in and work even more myself directly on the projects. Um, but it was that experience where I was like, the number doesn't matter. 
what's important is that we, you know, we have to be sustainably profitable is the way I talk about it. Um, I want to make money, but I'm not driven by how much money we're making, but I want us to be profitable. I want us to be sustainably profitable because that enables a lot of really great things that we can do, but it's really important that we're also happy, living a balanced life, enjoying and loving the work that we're doing. Um, so that was probably one of the biggest lessons I got out of the first year. That's a great, I mean, that's a great lesson to learn in year one. Cause I, you know, coming from a sales standpoint, uh, which is, you know, kind of my bread and butter for a lot of the stuff I do now, it's that, that's something I think gets a lot of sales teams, a lot of organizations off because that, yeah, they're looking at a number we got to get here. And again, not that that can't be a motivator, but going back to, and we'll chat about this a little more is empathy. It's when you really think of your clients and where you want them to go, are they achieving the success that you'd like them to achieve? It all, it all comes back in spades, um, if that's a correct terminology, right? They're phrasing, it all comes back because, again, you're living your core mission, your core values of the organization, right? If you're right. only looking at it to get the next dollar, well, then you're going to take, you know, you're going to cut corners, you're going to do stuff that's selfish, and ultimately, it's going to, you know, you kind of show up with egg on your face, right? So that's, yeah. that's pretty good to learn year one, because I'm assuming that's helped propel y'all the last nine. No, it, it was a great lesson um, for us. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, it, ultimately we're, we're a premium agency. We do very high quality work. Um, there's a lot of thought that goes into the work and clients pay a good amount of money for it. We're not, you know, we're not the value brand or something that, that you would go and hire. And every, every project with every client is important and critical for them and their business. And so if you, you, you let them down, um, you know, that that's not good for your own business and your opportunity to get a repeat engagement, like it just damages your reputation. Right. And without your reputation, you might as well just pack up and go home. Right. Absolutely. What, what were you thinking you were going to do in sales when you were in week one? What was your goal versus getting to the million halfway? Were you just hoping to keep the lights on or? Yeah. I was like, let's see what we can do. Like I had no idea. Um, I had absolutely no idea. And we have been, you know, like any small business or most businesses, we've been on the roller coaster of having amazing years um, and then having some really dry years and have had to, you know, do layoffs, which have been really difficult um, and then have really flush years. And, you know, if you, my, the guy that uh, is, we call him our financial navigator, he's kind of in the, like a C, CFO role for us now, he and I, like, there's no, there's very little rhyme or reason if you line up year after year after year as to how we perform. There's always these exceptions like, oh, well, the CPG industry had a lot of contraction and a lot of budgets were cutting in 2014. That washed onto our shores in 2015 and led to a bad year. That's the year we had to do some layoffs. And we weren't, we were like diversifying out of one client, individual client banner, but hadn't diversified out of sectors. So we were still getting dragged down by a, a particular sector. And so now it's it's you know, like a, a different focus on what we're doing. But yeah, year one, I, who knows? <laughs> like, yeah, wanted to keep the lights on, didn't want to go into the deep red um, and wanted, yeah, it was, it was like, we'll figure it out as we go along, what we can actually do. 
Share with me, if you don't mind, a little bit around the support systems that have been in your life. And this could be going all the way back to, again, some early roles. This could be more recently. But how important has for you, A, have they all been positive support systems or have you had bad circles that you've run in that you've kind of learned from? Uh, but just more curious around the, the people you've surrounded yourself with and how important that has been uh, to your success. That's a great question. Um, yeah, if I go all the way back, I mean, so, you know, I, I grew up in, I grew up in small town, Indiana. Um, my family had moved in from elsewhere. We had an Italian and still have an Italian last name. Um, and that was not really conducive for a gay youth. Uh, I wasn't out at that point, but all the kids picked up on it and kids can be pretty cruel. Um, so I got a lot of, uh, um, you know, I was bullied and, and taunted and teased, um, you know, and it's hard. Like I, every child has difficulties when they're growing up, um, but we're not talking to each other about it. So we only know what we experienced ourselves. So my experience was bad for me. It was, you know, maybe pales in comparison to other people, but it was my experience. Um, so then I, I would say when I was a kid, my family, and they still are a, a strong support network, but that was the place that I felt really safe. Um, and, and I didn't rock the boat necessarily at home because the seas were kind of turbulent outside of that. And then I developed as I got older, some other friendship, uh, circles. I had a really tight group of friends from Syracuse and I'm still very good. You know, I think some of my closest friends, uh, came from Syracuse. Um, and, you know, experiences there. <clears throat> so they've all, you know, they're the types that are in your life where they, you know, you pick up the phone, you call them, they hear you say hello, and they're like, oh my God, what's wrong? Like they can just tell from the tone of your voice. Um, yeah, and so I think for me, support networks uh, have definitely been on the friends and family side. I think professionally, um, you know, and this will tee up into talking about empathy. Some being empathetic, um, we are <laughs> we're like the beacon, um, the big shiny light on the porch that moths get drawn to, and those moths are narcissists <clears throat> because they they are unable to have empathy and they're not plugged into the emotions, so they get drawn to that. So I do tend to, to draw in some narcissists and I'm not always been great at spotting them or spotting them soon enough that I can kind of deflect and, and send them on their way. Mm -hmm. um, so I've run into some challenges there. And I would say in the past, that's been my blind spot. I think I'm a lot better at it now. Um, so knock on wood, hopefully I won't be running into it again, but you never know, life's a journey. Um, and then I think more recently, you know, becoming a CEO and and starting your own company, it the, there's the the expression that it's lonely at the top, um, and it really is true. And you don't truly appreciate it until you're there. There's you know you I cannot talk to my employees about issues at the company, fears that I've got, concerns because they're employees and the way I have to be mindful of how they're going to take that information and how that's going to, you know, maybe positively, but also negatively impact them and their own ability to, to do their job. And it's, it's, 
So it's something that, you know, it becomes a, a burden that the CEO has to bear. And it's not just the CEO, it's anybody at any company that's in that C-suite mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out like how, who to talk to. Um, and so the Insights Association, which is a professional organization that our company is a part of, they have a CEO summit um, every year. And I went to that a couple of years ago and it was like, oh, I found my people um, because there were other CEOs and I was able to have conversations with them that they understood what I was going through and vice versa. And we were able to help and support each other. And so um, professionally, I've got a support network now of other CEOs um, that I'm able to tap into. I've heard amazing things about some of the entrepreneurial organizations, um, EO in particular, um, that have been really helpful in very much the same way for um, my friends that are, that are entrepreneurs. Yeah. So to your point, let's use that T up there on empathy to, to chat about when did you first realize that a, you were like, not only were you empathetic, a lot of people are empathetic, but like you recognized that that was a key contributor to who you were as a person and, and kind of how you wanted to lead your life. Yeah, it, it, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, but empathy was my survival skill. Um, and it, it's, you know, when you're, um, I don't know if it's just when you're under attack, if you would, but I developed my superpower of empathy at a very young age when I was growing up and I had all these kids, you know, at school, not wanting, you know, teasing me, calling me gay, faggot, wanting to beat me up. So, okay, I can't get out of school. I have to go do that. So I had to figure out how to survive. And I realized um, by just watching people again, like, the fact that it took me 37 years to figure out I should be in research is kind of surprising. But um, I realized by watching my classmates at the time that, well, if I become friendly with them and get interested in them, then they'll be less likely to, you know, taunt me, tease me, bully, you know, and they might actually back me up. So I started to learn how to listen um, and just hear from other other classmates um, and, and try to get along with them and see their perspective. Um, because I was always wondering like, what did I do? Why, why me? Why are they, why are they, so what if I am gay? I wasn't even sure of that myself at the time, but so what if that was the case? And like, why are you even picking on me? So I thought, all right, well, let me turn this around. Let me try to connect with them. Um, ooh, Kath coming to visit. Um, and let me try to, 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 to get to know who they are and see them as people. And that's something then that just became instinctive for me uh, throughout my life. Um, when did I learn that empathy was really like this true superpower, how to harness it? It's probably only been in the last... 15 years, I think as I've gotten into research, because what we do is understanding the point of view of other people and helping our clients see that point of view and understand, and then understand what they can do about it. Um, so then that's just become something more and more that I've been able to, to practice and explore myself. Um, 
you know, yeah, with every every research project that when I used to go into the field, um, every time I interview somebody, it, it's a journey in empathy yeah. uh, and trying to practice that. How do you get, I don't want to take your answers from right behind you in the wall, ask more questions and listen, but how do you get better at, at empathy? What can people do? Yeah, well, these are two of the five steps. We, I've identified that, there, and I write about, there's five steps to building empathy. Um, the first step, these are steps two and three. The very first step, though, that people need to follow is to dismantle their judgment. So what ends up happening is um, um, judgment, and, and there's two different types of judgment. There's being judgmental, and then there's making a judgment. <clears throat> making a judgment is like, hmm, should I walk down this dark alley or not? That's one type of judgment. But then there's the being judgmental, and that's the casting aspersion, looking down on somebody. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets in the way of having empathy uh, with somebody, because you're immediately sizing somebody up as soon as you see them, whether it's on a Zoom call or in person, however you're first engaging with somebody. Um, and the judgment gets in the way, it's a, a roadblock. So if you're able to recognize that and dismantle it, not bring down that wall, then you're able to ask good questions, actively listen, and then start to um, integrate that into your own understanding and use solution imagination. And one of the things, a couple of the things people get um, tangled up on with empathy, one, is they, they're not recognizing that they're continuing to bring their judgment in. But the other thing, people think that, under, you know, if, if the definition of empathy is being able to see the point of view of somebody else as they see it, that doesn't mean you have to give up your own point of view. It just means you have to recognize that, okay, they have this point of view. You might like pepperoni pizza, I might like cheese pizza, neither one of us is wrong. We could debate it and argue it as much as we want, but I need to ask good questions and listen to you without judgment around why you like pepperoni pizza, and then hopefully get to a point where I can integrate that into my understanding. It's like, okay, well, I like cheese pizza because I like how really clean and crisp it is, and that cheesy flavor just comes through, and I can add you know, ranch on it, and that tastes really awesome. But you might have this other point of view around pepperoni and why that's such a the better pizza. Um, <clears throat> doesn't mean my view is wrong, mm-hmm. nor that your view is superior, but it's like that's just another point of view. And once I start to understand that as a marketer and I can let go of my like obsessive love for cheese pizza and go, well, okay, there are people that like pepperoni and here's why. And then that starts to unlock, hmm, Here's how I might be able to market and communicate and sell to them to get them to buy even more of our pepperoni pizza. Or I could create the pepperoni lover's pizza on top of that that has even more pepperoni or whatever the innovation is. And so that's where having empathy just unlocks so many amazing things. But people get tripped up by not, by thinking, oh, I've got to like get rid of my point of view and adopt the view of somebody else. No, you just have to be able to see it and then be able to temporarily put yourself into their shoes so that you can then figure out what to do. Well, I think we're seeing this a lot from a political standpoint these days, right? 
is it's almost like we put a, a barrier up once we hear there, you know, there's probably a handful of words once someone hears that's on, let's call it one side of the aisle, or the other. And, and it's like, you get you're like, Nope, I'm not even having a conversation for whatever reason. Um, which is again, it's, we can go down a whole path with that. It's just intriguing to me going back to empathy is like, why would you not only judge person by their point of view? And yes, you may not agree with it at all, but let's understand what, how do they come to that? Right. right. What are the reasons they came to that? It doesn't mean and, you have to agree with them, but. And, and that's how, sorry, I'm a needy cat. Um, that connection and listening and trying to see somebody else's point of view, that's how compromise is reached. That's how solutions are reached. You know, it, it, we're, we seem to be in this period of zero-sum game. It's like, I win, you lose. And I don't think it's just with this particular administration. It's been trending this way for quite a while. We're very polarized, and it's like, no, it's got to be this way or that way. Instead of, okay, well, what's the sensible compromise? What's the solution that works for both, uh, both people? And I think part of that issue is where what's led us to this place is there is actually a decline. There's been a measurable decline in empathy skills uh, and the ability to have empathy with basically folks that are under 40. Um, there was a study out of the University of Michigan in 2010 um, that looked at student life surveys from 1979 through 2009. And they did a meta, so it was a meta study and meta analysis of the question, can you see the point of view of your classmates? That's a basic empathy question. And what they found was that starting in 2001, college students in 2001, there was a 40% decline in having empathy and it remained suppressed at that reduced level all the way through the rest of the data that they had through 2009. They refreshed that study, we heard in 2015 or 16, I think, or up to 2015 data, and there was no real change to that. So it doesn't mean that people don't have the ability to have empathy, but they're not tapping into it um, as easily and as readily as they were. And you know, it, it makes sense when you think about like, okay, well, why is that? Well, we're caught up in social media and validating ourselves rather than listening to somebody else. It's all about me, 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 like me, um, you know, tell me that I'm worthy rather than listening to what somebody else is really going through and trying to see their point of view on something. So we, we've got this very superficial and self-directed um, engagement. And that's been going on for over you know, 12 years now. Um, even longer, actually, I think Facebook got going in the early 2000s. Um, and it's not just Facebook, you know, it's, it's every form of social media, it's our devices, it's the way that we're engaging with that to the exclusion of everything else. And then if you also think about, okay, so people that were in college in 2001, they were growing up in the 90s, and it's in the 90s. That was me, that was me. And it was in the 90s when parents started to really schedule their kids, lots of different activities and going from here to there and this to that. I had a couple different activities when I was growing up, but I had plenty of time, especially in the summer, to get bored if I wanted to. Because, and being bored is really important because what happens when you're bored is that you have to go, you know, mom and dad says, oh, go in the backyard and figure out something to do or go play in your room. Well, the things you end up doing are role-playing 
games typically, whether that's playing with dolls or action figures or, you know, toy trucks and cars and things like that, you're role playing. And role playing is about taking the perspective of somebody else. Like if you're going to step into Wonder Woman's boots or you're going to put on Spider-Man's web slinging um, device, you have to take on the perspective of Spider-Man because you're gonna be Spider-Man or Wonder Woman or whatever the character is that you're playing. That's all empathy. And it's so important for kids at a young age to be practicing empathy and practicing those empathy skills to build the muscle up. Um, because every human is born with empathy except for narcissists and sociopaths. Um, they, as I mentioned earlier, have trouble accessing it. but Generally, the vast population, we all have access to empathy, but it's a muscle. And if we don't practice that muscle, it remains weak. Or it can even atrophy as an adult if we're not utilizing it properly. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, I mean, this is a really good topic. We could probably talk about uh, for hours. Is this what you're, I know you're writing your first book. Is this some of the topic of what's, what's it around? This is, this is, um, this is what the, the first book is all about, is my own journey to understanding these five steps to empathy and what empathy really is all about. Um, and it's my own experiences um, out in the field. So stories with respondents and the, you know, the, the amazing thing about this field, doing qualitative research, I liken it to Christmas morning. Like you don't know what you're going to get. You go up to somebody's house and you're knocking on the door to go in and have an interview with them. And it could be fine. It could be like an everyday kind of average Christmas present, or it could be that toy that you always wanted or that thing that's just going to change your life, that experience with another person that just completely moves you. Um, and you never know until you actually get there and get into it. Um, and that you're even looking for it with that, that person. So yeah, the book has a lot of stories of that um, journey. Um, and I, I draw from that, try to serve up the five steps and even help people understand like it is not a linear process. Like you, you may get you know further down and then realize judgment comes back up for whatever reason. So I've, I've certainly found that in my own experience. Well, once you get deeper down in the book, I know you're still writing it, so I won't put you on the spot of launch day turning, but I'm just curious, one question around is like, what made you want to write a book? Right, you got this business that's growing, you got all this other stuff going on, why write a book? Well, like, where would I find the time? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I, um, I've always gravitated towards writing as my kind of artistic expression. So it's not a surprise to me that writing, whether, you know, 20 years ago, a friend and I sat down and created a, a pilot script for a TV series. And a friend who was an agent said it was like better than half the pilot scripts that he had read from the professional writers. So writing for me is, is second nature, whether it's in a screenplay form or in a book um, <clears throat> and something I've always wanted to do. I think I was um, wrestling with what the topic was going to be for quite a while. I'd gone down a couple of different paths. And again, it's about that trifecta you were talking about. Like I didn't have the passion for it, for the topic. I was interested in it, but I wasn't really passionate about it. And I was doing a lot of lecturing um, and, and I do a lot of lecturing at college campuses, talking about empathy, talking about my career and the, the, my industry. 
And just watching the students respond to the message and what I was conveying in the stories of the individuals that I was meeting, it was so clear. It just dawned on me at one point, like I'm standing in class, I got like 80 students you know, surrounding me. And I'm like, oh, this is what I need to be writing about. They need to, you know, so again, little message from the universe, like you need to be writing about empathy. And it makes sense. That's what I know. It's my superpower. I can talk about it, you know, ad nauseum. Um, and I've got amazing stories that go along with it too. Well, excited to uh, to read it once it does come out. Let me ask you one last question here. So you got to go back. Let's go back to the Syracuse days. Yes. If if you were if someone at Syracuse now or another university, right, another late teens, um, early twenties, you got one piece of advice that you're going to give them what you believe is the most impactful piece of advice. You have a small piece of paper though. You got a post-it note you can write it on. What are you going to say to them to help them on their journey a little bit better? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, life is a journey and you need to take time to enjoy what's coming up along the journey rather than be so fixated on the end result, which is, you know, quite honestly, death. Mm. Like take the time to enjoy life and enjoy the journey and, and take advantage of all those little things that come up, all these different careers that I, I've had. Everything, you know, when, when I started the company and I started drawing from all these different people in my past to help me with the company, I really had this very clear feeling that everything I had done in my life was leading up to this moment. And this is where it was all coming together, which was then to form this company. I was drawing, uh, one of my good friends from college uh, jumped in and started working with the company in year one. She worked with us for a few years. I brought people in from client side, from other like life experiences. It really became this full, you know, 360 moment, I guess, of, of everything that I've been doing in my life. Um, so yeah, be open. Enjoy, to the enjoy the journey, not don't be so focused on the destination, basically. Exactly. Don't be so fixated on the dollars, you know, as we were talking about. Don't be so fixated on, oh, I must be this. You don't know. Like, like be open to what's coming and, and those experiences. That that's the that's why we're here. Yeah. Um, don't don't try to rush through your life. Enjoy your life. Yeah. Yeah. And a great mentor of mine, you know, he he kind of coaches around you know, what you do is not who you are, who you are is what you end up doing, right? Um, and, and so many folks have it backwards. I had it backwards for the longest time where like you pick a job thinking that's going to define you. And then as we all know, we talk about getting laid off or you change careers and now it's like you don't have an identity anymore, you know? Right. Well, and, and we're trained in society. That's how we introduce ourselves yep. to each other. Notice on a mixer, like, hi, I'm Brian and I do this. You know, we're defined by our jobs, and we shouldn't be. We're so much more than that, and so hopefully, we're bringing that other piece. That's what we're bringing to our job, and that's what will make us special in the job that we are doing. Absolutely, Rob. This has been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed the the, the time evaporated here. <laughs> yeah, um, really where good. can everyone find you online and connect further? Uh, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn, uh, Rob Volpe. Um, 
empathy, just look for empathy activists. And that's, I don't think there are that many Rob Volpe's out there, but there are a few. Um, so look for CEO and empathy activists. You can also go to ignite-360.com. That is our website. Uh, and then you can email me directly at rob at ignite-360.com. Rob, thanks so much. Been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed that interview and thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along on your day. You know, this podcast has grown very organically since I started it over two and a half years ago. So anything you can do to share this episode out to your network or maybe go to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and review, um, anything you can do at all, I'd certainly be appreciative of it. Um, if you'd like to connect with me online, my website, brianondraco.com or head over to Instagram or LinkedIn and Twitter at Brian Andreco, or type my name, Brian Andreco, and it'll come up. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.